from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Thursday, November the 5th, 2020, two days after the election, and we are still not 100% certain who is going to be the next president of the United States. Maybe uh, talking about that a little bit with the uh, with Thane Rosenbaum of CBS News just after the mid-show break this morning. The uh, But first, before we get to that, we're going to be talking with Al Bay in the first half hour of the program today. He is... Uh, <clears throat> he is the Vice President for Operations at the University of Vermont Health Network. That big hospital system was uh, the target of a cyber attack last week, and we want to get caught up with how it's doing and trying to cope with uh, this uh, rather uh, unfortunate and uh, difficult-sounding situation. Um, in the uh, second half hour, we're going to be joined by Attorney General T.J. Donovan and University of Vermont student Ben Drape, who will talk to us about the collaboration between UVM and, and the Attorney General's Office to provide consumer assistance to Vermonters. Uh, it's a long-time collaboration between UVM and the Attorney General's Office to uh, uh, do the uh, consumer assistance service. And then later, uh, Derek Brower of Seven Days, uh, John Blay of uh, Sugarbush, and Molly Mahar of, the, uh, of Ski Vermont talk to us about... Uh, the uh, COVID-challenged winter ahead. Uh, the state issued some uh, guidance for ski areas this week and, uh, and how to deal with the COVID crisis. And uh, it sounds like it's going to be a challenge for sure. And uh, so we're going to be talking some about that in the second hour, as well as just uh, what it sort of looks like heading into winter for uh, Vermont, uh, dealing with the continuing uh, COVID-19 crisis. So, uh very full show today. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. And uh, let's get right into our first conversation this morning with uh, Al Gobey. He, as I mentioned, he's with the University of Vermont Health Network. And uh, Al, uh, I believe, is on the phone. And uh, good morning, sir. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Uh, we're doing pretty well. Hey, uh, I uh, wanted to check in with you because um, it sounds like tough times at the University of Vermont Health Network. And I'm just wondering, you know, a week out, I guess, really, from uh, this first, uh, the first news of the uh, cyber attack on the system there, um, how are we doing on getting hospital uh, systems uh, back to normal and so on? Yeah, Dave, I, I think you articulated it well. This is uh, in the middle of a pandemic. This is just a real serious blow to our operations and has been very, very difficult for our patients um, and our providers. And we've made great progress in a week, but um, this is a real heavy lift due to the damage that was done by the cyber attack and the need to make sure that all of our computer environments are are free of the what we think of as the virus. Yeah, um, and and um, one 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 personal question I have is how is the uh, portal doing where where patients can go in and look at like upcoming appointments and uh, and ask uh, for you know prescription refills and that sort of thing. I tried to use that and uh, not much luck the other day. Yeah, so uh, that's down, Dave, and uh, yeah, that that won't be back up until we get the system back up. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Uh oh, I uh, I was kind of kind of relying on that to remind me of when I was uh, when I was going to have a a certain appointment later on this month. I know I've got uh, something going on in November, but I can't remember uh, when. And so, 
I, I don't gather that if I call the office, they're going to be able to tell me either, right? Well, a, so we're struggling with obviously that that part of our system and our phone systems that that run over the internet as well, and they all they all don't. We have some clinics that are still analog, but um, what I would recommend is we have a website, um, uvmhealth.org, um, mm-hmm. where you can go on and uh, you know check in to see impacts on patient services and, um, you know, get information about the clinic. I recommend people try to call their clinic if they have questions like that um, and see if they can get through. But, you know, to the extent that this has uh, created, um, you know, anxiety in folks and, you know, just a hassle, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, we feel terrible about that. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I I gather that it's uh, it's a real headache, you know, internally, and, and uh, it sounds like for for quite a number of patients as well. And uh, so, uh, how is it actually working in terms of, um, you know, when it, I mean, let's say you're you're in a uh, in a specialty clinic clinic for uh, I don't know endocrinology or something, and you have regular patients who come in with to get checked up on a chronic condition or something, and and uh, um, normally. Uh, I would think the, you know, the, the the staff there can kind of look at this, look at the computer in the morning or whatever, and say, here's here's who we have coming in today, here are their charts and so on. Uh, and none of that is really able to happen right now, right? Well, um, you know, luckily, and, and so, Dave, the, the first thing I want to say is there's no one answer to any of those questions because our system is so big. I mean, this is yeah. impacting all the way from you know, Plattsburgh all the way to, to Berlin, you know, Porter, mm-hmm. Central Vermont, um, in, in different ways. And I could, I can talk about that, but, um, but we do have backup systems. So we have a backup computer system that has schedules and, uh, you know, some patient data. Um, and we also have, um, Vital, which is a, a public private partnership that keeps clinical data that we can access through their portal. And see uh, medications that folks are on, and also things about their their healthcare situation. But mm-hmm. um, but I want to, but I want to be clear that none of that is easy, none of that is efficient in terms of time, and it, it just slows us down and makes us able to do less in in terms yeah. of just raw efficiency, and and it makes mm. us and it makes us come across as you know disorganized, and you know so that's why we're fighting so hard to get this thing fixed and back up. Do you have a do you have a sense of a timeline here as to, in terms of uh, you know when do you expect things to sort of be back to normal? So it it it's not that kind of of repair so to speak mm-hmm. because because everything each step is dependent on the last step and so and there's so many you know the first point is when malware comes into a system of our size you just, it takes a long time to even figure out what it did. And so yeah. that took us a long time, and then to, when you start repairing it, um, it's it, there's always unknowns, and so I, I don't want to give a timeline um, at this point. Okay. What about um, sort of looking looking toward the future and trying to think about the any any system changes that need to be made to, uh, to guard against this kind of activity in the future? Um, do you have anything uh, in mind yet, or is it too early? So as we're putting things back up, we are doing things uh, to harden 
our system. But what I'll say is this is unfortunately, you know, you know, Dave, let me say this. Who wakes up in the morning every day and goes to work building a malware threat that takes down hospitals in a pandemic? You know, so, you know, that it's yeah. just unconscionable. And so what we do and what our technology teams do with a lot of, of private industry is it's an arms race to see how we can harden and stay ahead of these folks that are trying to hurt us. And um, we'll learn, you know, we'll learn from this and others will learn from what we're going through. But um, there's quite a few hospitals that are going through this, hospital systems, um, and it's just you're just always trying to stay ahead of the, of the bad guys. Yeah, and and I mean, I guess um, I, you know, I saw a notice from the UVM um, Medical Center uh, uh, media folks saying, you know, basically, we can't really answer questions about the investigation; those are for the FBI. But I guess uh, you know, since since you mentioned this, I'm, I'm I'm I can't imagine. I mean, as you say, who gets out of bed in the morning and says, "I'm going to go infect a hospital system with with malware during a pandemic." Um, so since you asked the question, what what is your best answer? I mean, is this a is this a disgruntled former patient? Is this a foreign actor oh, no. just trying to mess with systems in the United States altogether, or who is this? So so I don't know. If I did, uh, I would let the FBI know that. And so if anyone knows uh, anything, they should reach out to the FBI. But this is not just. Uh, you know, someone in a in their basement working on some some technology. This is uh, this is folks that are doing this uh, quite often and put a lot of time into it. Where they are, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'd leave that to the FBI. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I guess the other the other term we hear occasionally in connection with with uh, attacks like this is. Um, uh, ransomware or whatever, and, and that implies to me that you know they basically hold you up and demand money. Have there been any demands like that? You know, I, I don't want to comment on anything that's, that that the FBI is working on because I don't want to get in the way of their investigation. Um, so, so, so I'll leave that one aside. Okay. Um, and and as you say, this has been a phenomenon. I guess we've seen it in a number of hospitals around the country. This year, um, our our hospitals as an industry uh, sort of exceptionally vulnerable here. I mean, I think of you know the banking system or I don't know our, our utility grid, um, our uh, you know sensitive installations like chemical plants and so on, energy sector stuff. Um, you know, there there could be any any number of industries targeted in this way, but it seems to be focusing on hospitals right now. Um, and I'm just wondering, is that because hospitals have, by their nature, certain uh, weaknesses in, in protecting against malware attacks, or is, or is it because um, it just sort of was, hey, let's start with hospitals? Yeah, I, Dave, I don't know. I, I think your mm-hmm. question's a good one. I, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously um, this is something that occasionally I read about in in the press, uh, you know, people who, who uh, go to experts on uh, on cybersecurity and so on, and and there have been occasional conversations or articles for years about how um, some of our systems are are vulnerable and uh, some more vulnerable than others. I know many many companies um, take 
this kind of stuff incredibly seriously, um, you know, and, and uh, I mean, in, in national media organizations and so on, for, for instance, uh, you know, you don't want some malware actor suddenly injecting a, a headline into the into the New York Times system saying that, uh, you know, the Russia's just launched missiles at the United States or something. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, so and so uh, there's a whole really serious industry out there of people who work on cyber cyber security and, and they and they want to see um they want to make sure that that you know these threats are kept at bay basically and i i do wonder i mean i share your uh your kind of i mean it sounds like a little bit of dumbfoundedness at 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 just who the heck um who the heck is uh, is really thinking along these lines of like how do i really mess with the UV university of vermont health network i mean you know i just don't understand kind of the motivation or the uh or what the strategic objectives would be other than money. Maybe that's all it is, but uh, uh, it just strikes me as a really bizarre and uh, kind of pathological behavior out there, right? Yeah, I mean, Dave, really see the contrast here. We have 14,000 employees that wake up every single day um, altruistically trying to care for other human beings. And the folks that did this are the exact opposite. And so I guess, Yeah. yeah. By, by the way, full disclosure, uh, I think my wife numbers among those 14,000. Uh, she's uh, <laughs> a nurse in one of the affiliated practices at uh, Central Vermont Medical Center, and she hasn't told me much about what's going on with this thing in her office, but I uh, I just sense that, uh, let's just say there's a higher level <laughs> of stress to be shed when she gets home from work. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't laugh, but, I mean, it's uh, it sounds like it's kind of hell for a lot of people. Well, and, and let me make a couple points to that for the for the listeners. UVMMC, the, the Academic Medical Center, was actually the the one the one affiliate that was attacked. And what mm-hmm. that did is what that did is it brought down uh, our electronic medical record for um, Central Vermont Medical Center, Porter, and Champlain Valley Physician Hospital because they have the same electronic medical record called Epic that we yeah. have at the Academic Medical Center, but only for the outpatient side. And so for Central Vermont Medical Center, they're really impacted in their clinics. And, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you think back 10 years ago, a lot of clinics were still on paper primarily. And yeah. so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of folks that are, you know, it's like back to the future, you know. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. They're having to, we, we literally, for the lab, have stood up a, a fax uh, center in South Burlington with folks that normally don't do that kind of work. And we have, you know, they're working around the clock to get all the lab results out without a computer. Hmm. And so wow. it, we, we've had to spend as much time coming up with workarounds like that as we, and, you know, in, as our IT folks have had to spend working on with, with all of the private contractors we have. And now the Vermont National Guard, which, um, you know, let me stop and say thank you to Governor Scott and, Thank you to the, the National Guard. But, um, you know, all these folks are working hard, but the workaround part is hard, too. And so, yep. you know, yep. you know, yeah. I wanted to bring in a, a listener who's calling in. I believe it's uh, Bobby from Randolph. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I was just wondering, 
how come he was answer the first few questions he had on there and if there was somebody he could bring on to could answer those questions because they're kind of important. Uh, which which questions do you have in mind there, Bobby? The first few that he answered. He walked around them or he didn't even, he said he couldn't answer them. Well, um, I actually, I was kind of struggling with this yesterday when I was thinking about whom uh, should I get to be on the radio show because, uh, um, you know, the the, uh, the hospital is referring uh, questions about the investigation of this thing to the F- FBI. Um, and the uh, I, I did want to talk with uh, Al Gobey, about the vice president for operations, about uh, the, the National Guard's assistance announced yesterday. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I checked in with the guard and didn't hear back. Um, and I... Um, <clears throat> I just thought that uh, you know we 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 needed to get somehow onto this program that this in fact was going on and is a huge concern for thousands of Vermonters right now, um, and uh, and so uh, I think uh, Mr. Gobey is doing the best he can in terms of what he can what he can tell us and and uh, you know some of the, some of it probably is a. Uh, you know there are still unanswered questions for everybody, and then other other aspects of this thing might be that uh, you know there. Oftentimes in investigations, there's a bit of strategy where you don't want to let all of the facts you know out uh, ahead of uh, the strategic moment when they are most uh, useful. Anyway, um, so I, 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 uh, we're doing the best we can, I guess. That's my answer. My answer for you, Al. Do you have anything to to add to the mix there? Okay, that helps out. Thank you. Okay, Bye. thanks, Bobby. I did want to uh, get to this announcement yesterday from Governor Phil Scott from the Vermont National Guard and UVM uh, Health Network that uh, the National Guard was going to be involved in in the response here. Uh, tell us what what, did, what is it that they are going to be doing? Are they participating in the investigation, or is it more a matter of a, kind of a logistical thing of uh, you know getting systems back up and running? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dave. So. Um, Obviously, we take cybersecurity incredibly serious, and we have a whole host of folks internally that do this work. And as I said, uh, you know, other private businesses like Cisco and Microsoft and others that help us. Um, fortunately, the Vermont National Guard has a cyber response team, and these are um, really, really talented, um, brilliant uh, airmen and soldiers that uh, – that they've sent to us. There's 10 folks that are going to help us uh, review the thousands of end-user devices that are have been impacted with malware, um, restore our technical infrastructure, and uh, remediate the impact of this attack. And so, um, you know, we're hoping that they can, you know, join our folks and, and really uh, help us get this done much faster than we could without them. Yeah, so it sounds like it, it does sound like it is going to be. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of uh, probably rather uh, tedious and uh, and not anybody's favorite work to do in just cleaning up this mess, basically. Um, and that and and that's what they're they're being brought in to help with. It sounds like. That's right, and it, and it is. It's uh, for some of it, it's a laptop by laptop uh, process, and some is obviously large computer systems. Um, that are done, you know, that are worked on in, in different ways. But um, it all has to be, you know, your term mopped up and stood up and, you know, uh, you know, restored. And so, uh, 
you know, it's just fantastic that the governor uh, was willing to support us in this way. And in full disclosure, mm-hmm. I was a I was a member of the Vermont National Guard, so uh, I'm awful proud of them. So it's uh, fantastic to see the talent that they have. Not something that I, having been in the Guard, even knew they had. So. Yeah, I was actually unfamiliar with that, too. I know that there are um, some cybersecurity experts, for instance, at Norwich University and also at the University of Vermont, uh, and uh, I, I did not know that this was a this was actually a, a service or a function of the Vermont National Guard, but uh, if they've got a team skilled up and ready to go, uh, that's, uh, that's a great thing. So, yeah, well... Bring them on, um, and Algo Bay. I'm wondering, uh, just one, uh, just a couple minutes or so to go here. Um, we, uh, I, I do want to get you to talk a little bit about um, kind of looking ahead to the future here. I mean, and actually, just one of the things you mentioned a moment ago about going laptop by laptop. This malware infection out there um, traveled over the network. There's no cure that can be can, that can travel over the network and kind of. A reverse whatever bad action happened in the uh, in the cyber world um, is there? Yeah, well, there, so there is. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's different technology that can be put into the system, and depending on what the device is, be done kind of using the word automatically. You know, that's my yeah. layperson speak. Yeah, there right. definitely is uh, computer programming that can do that, and we're in the process of that now. Yeah, and, and and let's look at the future now and ask, um, is there any way to sort of guard against this kind of attack in the future? In other words, if you've got it, you know, I, I mean, I know that there's all sorts of antivirus software and stuff like that out on the market. I mean, is there is there anything out there that you, you can say, well, we're going to have to have a new budget item for next year of uh, installing whatever it is on our, all of our systems to uh, guard against this kind of malware attack? So, you know, so... Uh, I'm not going to dive into the technical end of it because I'm not a, an IT person. But yeah. just, you know, for something you and I both can totally understand is email. You know, are we going to let external emails come into our network? Are we going to, you know, how are we going to handle, uh, you know, the way we manage, uh, you know, that type of uh, that type of exposure? I think that's something where you got to do the risk-reward thing. And, and figure out if there's other ways to, to allow people to access you um, other than email. And there's other more technical things, hardening things we can do, but everything, uh, re- just remember what I said earlier, every step we take, the, the folks that are trying to get at us are watching it and thinking of a way around it. So, yeah, um, well, it's, a, it's know, an ongoing it, battle. Yeah, hey, uh, unfortunately, we're about out of time. Uh, Al Gobey, the uh, Vice President for Operations at the U- University of Vermont Medical Center, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I appreciate the uh, update. Absolutely, Dave. Take care. All righty. Uh, let's go to a bottom-of-the-hour break for some CBS News, and uh, when we return, we'll be talking about uh, consumer protection and collaboration on that between the University of Vermont and uh, the Attorney General's Office. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. 
News Radio WDEV FM and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Yep, we are back and we are uh, going to be uh, doing our weekly Seeds to Society segment. Uh, we're going a little bit afield today, I must say, but uh, that's okay because the University of Vermont College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, which helps us put on this segment once a week, is such a widely varied place. Uh, they they come up with topics and with guests uh, who uh, I go, wow, that College of Agriculture and Life Sciences is doing that? And I did have a little bit of that reaction this week when I heard that the under that umbrella of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences comes a, a consumer protection office at the University of Vermont, which has worked in collaboration with the Vermont Attorney General's office for decades now, I do believe. And uh, we're going to hear all about that program and that collaboration from uh, two people heavily involved in it. Uh, ben Drape is a student at the University of Vermont, and the Attorney General, T.J. Donovan, of course, uh, is holding up the other end down there at his office in Montpelier. And uh, so we're going to hear all about the Consumer Protection Division uh, today. And uh, Mr. Attorney General and Mr. Drape, thank you very much for joining us. Morning, Yep, and uh, let me let me start with you, if I could, uh, T.J. Donovan, and ask you about a little bit of the history here. Uh, how long has this this collaboration has been going on since before you were Attorney General, right? Yeah, I think the, the partnership with Consumer Assistance Program at UVM goes back to the, the early '80s, um, so at least you know, uh, close to 30 years, perhaps a little bit longer. And mm-hmm. it's a great way to collaborate and to have kind of a force multiplier using the students at UVM for credit who get real practical uh, experience in terms of uh, consumer assistance and learning about consumer issues, of course, with the academic complement uh, with the class. Uh, so it's just a great program, and it's a great way, I think, for, uh, you know, we get, I think, over 10,000 calls a year for Vermonters to talk to people in state government in an effort to solve people's problems. It's constituent services. It's something I feel very strongly about, uh, and I'm just really proud of the partnership. And um, Ben Drape, uh, you, you're a student at the University of Vermont. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what, are, you, what are you studying there, and what year are you in? Uh, I'm a senior, um, so mm-hmm. I'm in my final year, and uh, I'm studying public communication there with the um, – CDAE program, Consumer Development and Applied Economics. I see, um, and the um, and, and and that's that is definitely under the under the Cal's umbrella. I know because I've spoken with people in that uh, in that division of uh, of the uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences previously. So uh, they're, they're, I guess it all makes sense now. And uh, Ben, how many uh, <clears throat> how many students at UVM are involved in the crew there that uh, that works on these uh, consumer assistance uh, efforts? Um, Not many. So uh, there are generally it's classes of about five to ten. And, you know, that's mostly just because uh, we have these practicum hours that we work in the actual office. And, you know, there's only so much space for us uh, in that office. Um, Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, there are generally about ten of us per semester, roughly, give or take. And, and uh, how has that worked in terms of uh, the current COVID crisis? I mean, I know that, uh, uh, for instance, last spring, UVM was, was pretty much shut down as a campus. Everybody was doing remote learning and so on. Are you able to uh, take these consumer assistance calls maybe on your home phone or something? Do they patch them through, or how does that work? 
Yeah, so um, I'm actually in a bit of a unique situation because uh, I took the first level of the class last year um, and mm-hmm. just loved it so much that I actually ended up getting a part-time job with the Consumer Assistance Program over the summer. Uh, I see. And so that, that involved me getting a, a computer to work remote from and, and all that. But in terms of the students who are in the class uh, currently, they are uh, generally, they'll come into the office one or two at a time um, in order to be able to kind of abide by the social distancing guidelines, and they'll be able to do the work in the office. There's just a lot less of them there than there usually are. And uh, l- let's say I'm a consumer with a, um, you know, an unhappy result in trying to uh, get some company to, I, let's say I, I paid for a product uh, that I found online and uh, and all of a sudden the uh, it's not showing up and I'm like well what's the deal and so I end up calling the consumer assistance hotline which uh, um, b- by the way uh, I, I know there's an 800 number what is that um, that's 1-800-649-2424 649-2424 okay and uh, so um to walk me through the the process here of of kind of how it it, it first gets handled by I gather the person taking that call is going to be one of these uh, one of the students at the university and then eventually uh, it, you know if it's shown to be something which needs investigating by uh, sort of the pro- professionals down at the uh, attorney general's office there's a handoff there at some point right yeah so um, CAP offers an informal letter mediation process to folks who are having issues with the business. And basically what that looks like is generally folks will give us a call. Uh, they'll let us know what their problem is. And uh, depending on what their problem is, if it's something that we actually can help them with, uh, we advise them to file a written complaint on our website. Uh, and that mm-hmm. information is then forwarded to us at the office. And we go through processing the complaint, putting all the information into our database and contacting uh, both the consumer and the business that the consumer is filing the complaint against to try and kind of mediate in between and get them to solve the issue kind of between the two of them. Now, if if I were in a business which um, uh, I was a little shady, let's say, and I uh, and I thought that, uh, you know, I could put one over on uh, X number of consumers out there, um, and but that, I don't know, one out of ten or two out of ten or whatever would actually make the call, to uh, six four nine two four two four one eight hundred six four nine two four two four, and and the other eight would just kind of uh, you know uh, suck it up basically, and uh, uh, and whatever to whatever extent I'm making money off of that transaction, I just merrily go on my way. I mean, are, are there businesses who sort of who sort of uh, roll along and and I'll, I guess I'll ask this one of uh, T.J. Donovan. Uh, and sort of absorb consumer complaints occasionally as uh, kind of a cost of doing business? I mean, I think, you know, providing a good call of service uh, to your consumers is good business. And so I think, uh, look, Vermont is a, is a state made up of small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, enormous challenges right now, which is interesting to note. I think under Vermont law, uh, businesses are used consumers too. So, um, I don't think it's a, a either or, and certainly we don't try to uh, uh, create a dynamic where it's a it's a anti-business or a us percent mentality. For me, this is just about um, service. This is about trying to, uh, as Ben said, uh, 
solve and resolve uh, people's issues. Look, uh, people have consumer complaints all the time. Uh, it's, not only, it's not only just complaints, though, David, I want to talk about. We also need to talk about the number of games that are out there, um, which CAP really plays a great role uh, in trying to uh, educate awareness of what's happening in Vermont. Uh, because uh, they're really otherwise, and people are losing. Mm-hmm. TJ Donovan, I think I'm going to file a consumer complaint against your cell phone company because. Hey, hey listen, uh, if, this is, if, I, if I stand in one particular place on my front porch, I get good cell service. This is ridiculous. We've got to fix this in Vermont. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I get you. I, listen, I understand. It's a, it's quite uh, quite uh, frustrating sometimes, and uh you know, you're uh, you're up in the Burlington area, right? You're not even like out in the boonies. Yeah, or I'm in I'm in South Burlington, but I I'm in, I'm in the middle of a hill, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the hell, what the heck's going on. Okay. Well, anyway, I think it's a little better now, so uh, I can understand. Well, I'm, uh, I'm standing. I'm standing on a chair on one foot on my front porch. That seems to work. <laughs> We're not going to make you stand on your head, so that's a good thing. Anyway, uh, TJ, I'm wondering if you could tell us again. You you were saying uh, before the break that this is not just a matter of taking consumer complaints, but there's another aspect of the consumer assistance program as well. And uh, why don't you elaborate on that now that we can understand what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, Dave, what I was talking about are the rise in scams, and really CAP does a tremendous job in raising awareness uh, and educating uh, Vermonters uh, about the scams that are happening. Look, scams are on the rise. We live in, a, we live in an online world, and uh, whether it's the social social security scam, whether it's going to be the IRS scam, uh, some sort of holiday scam, certainly the grandparent scam, um, this stuff's on the rise. People are getting ripped off. People are losing thousands of dollars. So we really try to make a, an effort from CAP to get the word out uh, and do scam alerts uh, when we when we see things happening. Uh, given given that winter's coming, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a, uh, an uptick in utility scams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, so uh, and 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 basically, what it sounds like is uh, you see patterns develop. Uh, when when a whole bunch of consumer complaints come come in about uh, you know uh, people getting calls uh, from people who claim that I'm representing your electric company and I'm going to shut off your service if you don't pay me whatever uh, and then it turns out the uh, the real electric company had nothing whatsoever to do with these calls uh, you know you know you're on to on to a uh, so so what are the what are some of the current um, uh, kind of um, what, 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 are the, what are the hot scams going on right now, TJ? Sure. Um, I think always social security scam is always uh, the number one. Um, and, again, it depends at the time of year. The IRS scams, a big one. Uh, frankly, we saw some uh, COVID stimulus scams. Uh, we'll see some charity scams, given that we're coming up on the holidays. And I think we're going to see some utility scams where people are saying, I'm going to shut off your power, your heat, unless you pay me. Um, yeah. And, of course, Vermont, Vermont Utilities would never demand payment uh, over the phone. Um, and, you know, the grandparent scam is one that that really gets me because it, it is just such a sinister scam where you're calling a grandparent pretending to be uh, a grandchild that's in trouble, you know, that was in an accident, is in the hospital, has been arrested. Uh, we had a case, uh, a neighbor of mine, Dave, actually called me, his 88-year-old father, uh, I think wired eighteen thousand bucks, eighteen thousand uh, dollars, 
uh, to a scammer because they said that his son was in an accident uh, in the hospital and needed the money. Uh, mm-hmm. We were lucky enough to, to get the call and get on the phone to the banks and stop the, the transfer, but this is big money for people. And I don't know if yeah. you have seen anything different on the ground uh, up, up at UVM, but I'll, I'll ask him to I'll tell you what he's, what he's seeing and hearing. And where, where do most of the scams originate from? Well, <laughs> we don't know. Uh, I don't think they're within a uh, lot. Of course, some are uh, perhaps the United States. This is a global, this is a global problem. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so hard to enforce. Yeah. Um, ben Drape, uh, University of Vermont, end of this uh, collaboration, I, I wanted to ask you, so when, when there's a uh, a spate, let's say, of, of utility shutoff scam calls going out, do you get sort of a notice about that? Uh, does the Attorney General's office or, or do you folks uh, generate uh, a report saying that, hey, we've had 17 calls this week on this same type of scam and uh, here's what here's what to watch out for or whatever? Yeah, uh, our office are actually the folks who usually are hearing about the scams first. Um, we mm-hmm. encourage anyone in Vermont who receives a scam phone call, whether or not they've fallen for it or not, to give us a call and let them know that uh, they have been scammed or they received a scam phone call. Um, and we take all that data and we keep an eye on it and we look for any uptick in uh, any particular type of scam. And uh, we release something called a scam alert, uh, which you can sign up for on the attorney general's office. Um, and we'll just release that scam alert out, and it will inform anyone who signed up for it about the new, common, and exciting scam that's going on. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a, that's one way to keep up with this stuff, I guess. Um, hey, we have a listener who's checking in, a Guy from Berlin. Good morning, Guy. Hi. Uh, hey, speaking of having to stand outside and stand up on a chair, my uh, sister-in-law lives in Townsend, and she has to stand on top of her septic tank. To, to be able to uh, to use her cell phone, and they call it Mount Flushmore. But, but anyway, uh, the real reason I called is, TJ, speaking of scams, uh, do you have any word on whether the UVM Medical Center thing is, in fact, ransomware? Um, you know, I don't think I can publicly comment on that. And, um, you know, obviously uh, the FBI is involved. Uh, the Vermont Department of Public Safety is involved, and UVM is doing the best they, they can. I saw that the National Guard's cybersecurity team uh, is up there working right now, but um, that is, I think, being led by uh, the FBI, so I don't want to uh, comment uh, without uh, uh, hmm. making sure that I, I, I say something that hasn't been publicly dis- disclosed. Yeah, um, I, and I, I mean, I guess I'm I'll follow up on that if I could, which is also to say, and, and by the way, we did have uh, Algo Bay from UVM Medical Center on in the first half hour of the program this morning, sort of updating us on oh. where things stand here. And and uh, TJ, do you think that, that in, t- in the case of this uh, uh, calling on the National Guard as of yesterday, you know, a week into this, uh, this uh, situation there, is that a sign that uh, um, we're not, making that much progress and it's time to, you know, let's call in the National Guard because this crisis is still about as bad as it was on day one? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, certainly was briefed on this early, but I haven't um, uh, uh, a briefing this week on it. Uh, but I got confidence, of course, in, in the UVM Medical Center and the team up there and confidence in 
the FBI and the Department of Public Safety and, of course, the National Guard. And, look, it's all hands on deck. Uh, let's, let's fix this. Uh, let's make sure that uh, patients are getting the care they need. And I am 100% confident that uh, the doctors, the nurses, the, the staff up at UVM is going to uh, make do, uh, even if we're going back to pen and paper. Yep. Um, I, that appears to be uh, maybe going to be the thing. I don't know. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps all these uh, whiz bang new uh, computer networks and stuff are. Uh, well, you know, are, what, Dave. You know what's in- in- interesting though. Um, yeah. You know, we did um, um, we did we did a, we did an analysis, not an analysis. We did kind of a, a role playing thing at the, at the Tech Jam at Champlain College uh, last year about what happens when you know, a business uh, gets attacked. And really what you're seeing now a lot with a lot of businesses, which I think is, you know, very interesting in the sign of our times, people are carrying cyber insurance now uh, yeah. because of uh, not only uh, data breaches but cyber attacks. And Champlain College has a great program uh, of cybersecurity. And so, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is yet another thing we're now dealing with uh, in this online world, but I'm confident that, not only Vermont small businesses are equipped to deal with it, uh, but the folks that are Department of Public Safety uh, are going to be able to handle it as well. Yeah, the, you know, um, and I mean, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask about actually, um, a lot of the calls that I get, you know, sort of the uh, unwelcome uh, junk phone calls uh, on my cell phone come in from uh, people who are hawking. I guess some kind of uh, car repair insurance or something like yeah. that, um, uh, and they uh, they tell me that my vehicle's warranty has just about expired mm-hmm. or something. I got I got that the other day. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I said, well, I hope not because I just bought I just you know we just got the new car in June, so uh, we're, you know we we think we got more coverage than three months or four months or whatever, uh, and. Uh, uh, is that is that a scam or is that just somebody sort of hard selling uh, service that maybe people? I mean, I, I I'm trying to draw the line uh, a line between what's a scam and what's just uh, what's just sort of people selling stuff that you don't need. Well, well it's, it's hard to tell sometimes, Dave. That's the problem. And you yeah. know, I got that I got that message about our, uh, our the warranty on our car too uh, the other day. Mm-hmm. Well, as a scam, um, yeah. you know, thinking myself, warranty in a car, we we own lease. Uh, you know, I ask my, ask my wife, you know, what's right. going on with the warranty? But I viewed it as as a scam, and I mean, I hate to say this, but I feel like you know, unless you know the number and know uh, the person on the other end of the line and the business, and you do your due diligence, you, you should be skeptical. Never give out bank information over the phone. Never give out personal information such as, such as your social security number, and yeah. you know it, it's it's unfortunate, but that's the world we're in, and, and we got to be careful about uh, what we're doing. You know, I was my wife and I were doing some uh, things on, online the other day, uh, applying for something online, and you know it, it, it makes me nervous. Uh, yeah, and I, I get you. That, and I think what we have to do as we go forward. One of the main issues that we have to figure out in this online digital economy that we're involved is how do we carve out people's privacy? Uh, you know, we have a data broker law in Vermont, Dave, the first in the nation. Uh, yep. so people don't buy and sell to third parties our, our, our data. 
Uh, we should talk more about that at another juncture. Unfortunately, we're about out of time for this uh, segment, though. Uh, T.J. Donovan and Ben Drape, uh, the Consumer Assistance Program has the, been the topic. I thank you both uh, very much for joining me this morning. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and, Dave. I, I'll, I'll get off my uh, the chair on my front porch now. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Uh, let's go to a, a top of the hour break for some uh, CBS news here on the Dave Graham Show and WDEV FM and AM. And uh, when we are back, we're going to be talking with uh, Thane Rosenbaum of CBS News, getting an update on legal challenges to uh, election vote counting and so on. We'll be back shortly, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back. Thanks for staying with us into our second hour on this uh, Thursday, November the 5th, 2020. And uh, we're going to be talking in the next few minutes with uh, Thane Rosenbaum of CBS News. He's been following the uh, various legal developments connected with all the vote counting that's been going on last couple days in in a few of those states that are still... We're in, all the votes haven't been counted yet, and uh, they're counting away. And apparently, we're going to—we're supposed to hear a result from Pennsylvania later today, which, if it goes in the favor of uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, uh, that may just put him over the top and and uh, make him the president-elect. But let's hear what the latest is from Mr. Rosenbaum. Good morning, Thane. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Dave. So, uh, tell us a little bit about first off, just the lay of the land out there. I mean, it really—it uh, all comes down to. Uh, to Pennsylvania right now, uh, and maybe uh, early calls on Arizona are going to prove to be um, a little bit uh, premature? Well, yeah, those are the sort of the political ramifications of those. The legal are separate, for instance. Yeah. It could be very yeah. possible, right, that uh, today their, their certified results or finalized results in a number of states that actually get Joe Biden to 270, but that doesn't change the fact that there are a number of state court lawsuits against a number of these states' counting procedures, uh, and there's one case that's possibly working its way right up to the Supreme Court right now, involving mostly Pennsylvania, but it could involve some of the other cases. And if that case goes in the direction of the Trump administration or the Trump campaign, uh, every single ballot that had been counted, that had been received and counted after the deadline or after the election day itself would be invalidated means that all the counting of all the votes that came in after the actual election day uh, might end up being disqualified. Again, we're not there yet, but I think that amidst all of the lawsuits, the one that I think that's looming that is the most uh, the most defining would be the one that would be Bush v. Gore too, right? It would be the one that would literally change the outcome because it wouldn't matter what the final vote tallies were. All the votes that came in after the date deadline would not be counted. Hmm. Um, and and I'm wondering uh, the way it's been explained to me uh, earlier on. I think somebody was telling me that uh, in Bush v. Gore, what was actually stopped there was a recount in Florida. Uh, ballots that had been counted, I guess, once, and and then uh, there was all this all this worry about hanging chads and uh, and you know re- sort of rechecking the ballots and making sure the voter 
intent was clear and so on and so forth. The um, Florida vote then, I mean, this is different here where, where we're not really talking about a recount so much as just an initial count on on votes that uh, that were cast, uh, as far as anybody knew, legally. I mean, some of the folks were were maybe, uh, you know, lining up uh, on Saturday to vote, uh, drop boxes or in person, but a little a few days early, et cetera. And then uh, states were waiting, in Pennsylvania's case, I guess, until after poll close to start counting uh, these ballots. Does that mean that... Um, that those ballots are, are could be uh, ruled illeg- or illegal or illegitimate? Well, remember, there is actually a, a recount going on in Wisconsin. That's the, the, the request that's been requested there because it's under a 1% difference in the, uh, in the final vote tally. Um, right. But there is something here that's similar to voter intent like Chad, which is the, 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 the legitimacy of each ballot. So, for instance... There are defects potentially in the ballot, and if any of these defects exist, they can't be counted, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Although one could make the argument, yeah, but can't you do the same idea, right, voter intent? Yeah, it didn't have the signature right, or it's not postmarked, or it's not witnessed in some of the cases that require that, or there's some of these cases, there's two additional envelopes. There's one envelope called the sealing envelope that's put in the big envelope. So what if you yep. put your ballot just in the big envelope but not in the middle envelope, right? So you could say, well, what's really the difference? The intent is there, right? Little like the chat, like the dangling chads, right? Or the mm-hmm. butterfly ballot. Same other. Do we have voter intent? Well, what's the voter intent? Well, he put the ballot in there. He just forgot to put the middle envelope. So we we're, we do have that because Republicans are saying that there's been no oversight, no observation of the people that are tallying these ballots, and there's allegations, for instance, that in Georgia. Again, allegation uh, that in Georgia, uh, ballots that came in after the deadline are being mixed in with legitimate ballots. There's serious allegations in Pennsylvania, again, allegations, that the counters are fixing the defects, right? They're just filling in whatever the mistake is. Or one I read that is even crazier, they're calling up the voter to say, hurry up, get over here and fix your ballot, which you can't do either, right? It, it either comes in correct or it's not. Yeah. So, it's not just a matter of counting. There is an argument to be made that the ballots have to be uh, free of defects in order to count uh, itself. And that is really in question in North Carolina and Michigan and Pennsylvania and in Nevada. In Nevada, I hear today, I don't know if this is going to happen, the Trump administration, uh, Trump campaign says they're going to show ballots of voters who don't live in Nevada that were counted. Hmm. So, so, so if any of that's true, you can see how it's not just about counting the ballots. The argument here is you're not letting us oversee the vote, the people who are counting, and the people that are counting are cheating by fixing it or, or, or ignoring some things or tossing all the ballots together. Look, this all was created by COVID-19. We've never had this problem. Normally, absentee ballots come from military officials or people who happen to be living outside the country. There were very few ballots overall. Now, most of the voting is being done by mail, and it's clear that we weren't ready for these kinds of inundated uh, mailing uh, counting systems. It really is. uh, And and, and the other thing that, that we have to keep in mind is that 
it's pretty inconsistent. I mean, I know here in Vermont, where I am, any any ballot not received, not in the hands of the town or city clerk by 7 p.m. on election day is just not counted. Uh, whereas in some states, uh, if the ballot is postmarked before election day, put in the mail and may show up, you know, today, um, uh, just because the mail was delayed or something, uh, that, that ballot is still in that state legally eligible to, to be counted. Do I have that right? Well, Dave, you're, that's a, just a wonderful transition you just gave me. Thank you for that. Uh, that's actually <laughs> I try to help. Really, you 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 did. You really did. It was wonderfully done. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is actually the key thing that we haven't even discussed yet. That's the case before the Supreme Court, or will potentially be before the Supreme Court, which is what you just said. The numbers of states that allowed ballots to be counted and accepted. After the deadline by, say, three days or four days, some states do it three days, some did it five or six, and that they essentially changed the election laws to reflect this COVID problem, and the U.S. mail system said that they were going to be really slow. Remember, the United Postal Service said, we're really not going to be able to deliver in time. So a number yeah. of states changed the law, right? And they said, all right, fine, as long as it's postmarked, we'll count it. Well, the case that's going to go before the Supreme Court and five conservative justices on the Supreme Court might actually buy this argument, says, and one of them is already essentially, or three of them have essentially said they accept the, 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 the strength of this argument, which is that that was unconstitutional, that these decisions by some of these state courts to alter the election laws, to extend the deadline, we're all invalid because hmm. under our Constitution, all, under the Constitution, it is state legislators, it's their job to establish time, place, and manner rules regarding federal elections. State legislators, not state courts, not state elected uh, uh, election officials, state legislators. Courts cannot intervene to rewrite election laws. Right. So you just said, right, you said, well, what about the inconsistency? Some will allow, some cannot allow. And what the argument before the Supreme Court is, they were never supposed to do this. Now, remember, North Carolina is saying, hey, we did this for, you know, with hurricanes. It's an emergency. It's like a hurricane. COVID is an emergency and we needed to do this. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's a good argument. Right. You know, let's not disenfranchise voters, give everybody a chance to vote. But if you if you're if you're a constitutionalist, an originalist, you're saying, yeah, but the law required your state legislator to make that change. No one else, not a unelected uh, an election official, not a court. The legislator would have had to legislators would have changed the law. And that case, if that actually takes goes to the Supreme Court and the five conservative justices rule in that way, that means what you just said before, all the ballots that came in after election day would be disqualified in every state okay but now let me go back to uh pennsylvania here for a moment and ask you there are apparently hundreds of thousands of ballots in philadelphia which were uh duly cast and and in in the hands of the of the election officials the the county uh elections office by election day and the um uh, so the voters did their part, basically. And uh, it wasn't even a question of voters uh, sending in the mail so late that the that the uh, it was going to get there, you know, after Christmas <laughs> or whatever, right, if you know right, what I right. mean. Uh, and, yeah. and so, um, and, and, and in many places, there were uh, folks urging very strongly that voters not 
I mean, as of a week ago, I was hearing all over the national and state media uh, that voters should not put their ballots in the mail at this point because it's too it's too close to the election. We can't uh, count on the postal service to get the ballot to the to, uh, to the uh, your local election official in time. So your best bet is to go and deliver it in person or uh, put it in one of the drop boxes that are being offered in many places, etc. Um, and so, uh, but many, many voters actually followed those instructions and went ahead and let, let's say dropped their ballot off in personally at a drop box or at a clerk's office or something last Friday for just one example or Saturday or whatever if the office was open. Okay, so so they've done their they've done their part. They have voted uh, timely, and um, and is there talk that some of those ballots just because the elections office didn't get around to counting them um, are are they possibly not going to be counted? Hey, Dave, you're really good at this. You raised some interesting legal questions here, all in one question. The first question is, that's what Florida did, what you just said, which is, why don't you just count them when you get them? Right? Mm-hmm. That's why Florida's over, right? If, if some of these states, like some of this was, Pennsylvania created this problem by taking a position that if it comes in by mail, we're not going to deal with it until after everyone gets to vote by Election Day. Well, that was a mistake, right? If the votes were there, count them, right? Don't start yep. now. That's number one. Right. Number two, even if what you're saying is correct, right, the Trump campaign would say, yeah, but the ballots still have to be correct, right? If there's any defect in them, the fact that you brought it in early, that's very good that you performed your civic duty. Thanks for walking in early. But you just forgot to sign it. But you yeah. put the wrong date on it. But you didn't right. use the middle envelope. So we don't – we appreciate it, but we really can't, we can't count it under, the, under, the, uh, under our own election laws. The third point you're raising, which I think is a, is a separate legal argument, is – you know, which is something the Supreme Court's going to have to think about, which is that it's not just a matter of disenfranchising people, right? But if the state court, if the state law made a mistake by extending it improperly, right, in an in, in, uh, in, in unlawful way, extending the election deadline, the citizens in good faith thought that was the new law. And there's something called reliance interest or reliance theory. So that if somebody's acting what they understand to be the law, that they mm-hmm. shouldn't be punished when it turns out to be that's not the law, right? So that would be the argument that the Supreme Court would have to balance against the other one, which is to say none of these states were authorized to unilaterally change the date upon which these ballots can appear, right? And so, therefore, they're all disqualified. I can assure you that the liberal justices are going to argue what you just said. Well, look, I did everything I was – you said – remember, you said, I did everything I was supposed to do. Right. You were making a reliance argument, right, to say, hey, I I was told to come early. I did. I dropped it yeah. off by hand. So why, do right. I, why doesn't my vote not count? That's how that you just don't saying you've defined the two legal arguments before the Supreme Court if we get that far. Well, let's see if we do. Uh, Thane Rosenbaum of CBS News, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning and shedding some light on these legal questions around the voting. And uh, I suspect we'll be talking again as these things unfold over the coming weeks. So thanks again. Anytime, Dave. With this COVID-19 crisis, uh, which does not seem to be uh, going away. In fact, uh, if anything, it's been 
uh, surging in recent weeks uh, as we uh, head into fall and then, of course, winter. And uh, the state of Vermont is uh, sort of battening down the hatches here in many respects to try to get ready for uh, winter, our first winter with uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis uh our first early winter, I guess it was, it really appeared in late winter last, uh, last year or earlier this year. Uh, and the, um, but, uh, one of the industries in Vermont that really relies on a good, strong winter is the ski industry. So we're going to be talking about some of the, some of the uh, general, uh, preparations for winter and COVID-19 era, as well as the possible impacts on the ski industry. We've got a couple of, uh, folks to, uh, about with that with all of us uh, this morning, and um, we are going to uh, start out by talking with Derek Brower of uh, Seven Days, who had an interesting story in this week's uh, paper um, about uh, sort of an overview, including what's happening with the ski industry uh, as we as we head into winter, and then we're going to zero in on the ski industry some with uh, uh, first uh, John Blay of uh, Sugarbush, who's uh, who's uh, joining us uh, along with Derek Brower on the phone. And then a little later on, we're going to be joined by Molly Mahar of Ski Vermont, the Vermont Ski Area Association, giving us the statewide perspective on what is going on and how the ski industry and the state of Vermont are actually preparing. The state came out with an advisory to the ski industry earlier this week. It's, I think it's got lots of details that are causing a little bit of a, a little bit of a nervous stomachs or something among uh, ski industry officials, and we'll see uh, how all, all of that plays out. But let's, let's welcome Derek Brower of Seven Days to our air, uh, as well as John Blay. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dave, to be here. Thanks. Hey, uh, so let me uh, start out with you, Derek, and just give us an overview uh, of your story yesterday for those who haven't been lucky enough to pick up a Seven Days yet this week. Sure. So, uh, Dave, you know, as we're all looking at, uh, at the uh, votes being counted around the country, uh, the, uh, the U.S. has also um, seen record uh, case levels of COVID this week, um, 107 cases uh, yesterday nationwide and, and 1,600 deaths, uh, which is also a substantial increase from where the deaths have, have been. Um, and, and while uh, Vermont Vermont is seeing some some case growth as well, but, and, and while it's not uh, nearly as steep as so many other states right now, um, there are still uh, pretty significant uh, ramifications for Vermont of these cases around the country, and, and that's in part because uh, the state has taken uh, a very uh, aggressive approach to trying to prevent uh, new virus from entering into the state's borders. Uh, in the form of, uh, you know, what your, what your listeners probably think of as the travel map, um, that, that categorizes every county in, in the Northeast down, down into Virginia, um, based on, um, based on uh, their case rates and determines whether or not you need to quarantine if you, if you come to Vermont. Now, uh, that map is a, is a creation of, uh, of, of Vermont state officials, um, based on an algorithm that they determined and it happens to be um, quite a bit more strict than than the uh, than the case rates used by many other states to limit travel within their borders. And, and so, as we've seen cases go up in the region, uh, the number of people who can travel freely to Vermont has really shrunk. And in fact, this week, um, it's it's barely anybody can come here without completing a quarantine. It's it's about uh, 330,000 people in, in just six. 
six counties um, that are sort of spread out, and, and none of uh, Vermont's bordering counties are, are included among those six. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really uh, it's it's really a situation that I think is is going to have, um, if you know, particularly if it lasts um, for for weeks or months uh, into the winter, uh, significant uh, impacts on on our tourism industry as well as uh, for Vermonters and and uh, our ability to uh, to travel for the holidays and whatnot. Yeah, it, it's a tough situation, and, and uh, I'm wondering, uh, John Blay uh, from Sugarbush, uh, you are a communications uh, a chief there, and, and uh, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how, a, how a resort like Sugarbush, I mean, in normal times, uh, you know, you love the idea for somebody somebody coming up for, say, a long weekend or something from New York or Philadelphia or Boston or whatever, uh, and when the state says that somebody who wants to come up and visit from New York or Boston or Philadelphia uh, has to uh, quarantine for two weeks, I gather, before doing something like going and getting on a ski lift, right? Um, how does that work? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a complicated issue for sure. You know, the, the, the snow that we got over the last couple of days is all melting outside my office, so I appreciate you putting the ski industry at the forefront of people's mind as, as the snow dissipates. Um, you know, I think what is a, a big sort of boon, um, at least with regards to the state guidance, is that you can quarantine at your house. So if you live in a red county or you live in a yellow county, you can still quarantine, you know, at home, and then you can get in your personal vehicle and you can come to Vermont. So that's that's beneficial. It's not like you have to come here and then quarantine for um, 14 days, or or you can do seven days with a test. So knowing that, I think if if people can just sort of better kind of prep and plan for when they want to come and visit Vermont and do ski resorts, you know, that's that's something they can do. If they want to come for Christmas break, they just need to start, you know, moving into a quarantine process 14 days out or seven days with a test. So I, I think that it's, it's, it's very doable for someone to come ski if they live out of state, even in a red or yellow county, as long as they're adhering to the guidance. And, and, um, Derek, you, your, uh, I mean, your, your headline was, I think, sums up the, a part of the problem here, which is, uh, it says, Fort Vermont, the state trust travel rules to keep COVID-19 out, but who's guarding the gates? And so, I'll ask you, uh, I guess Derek first, since it was seven days headline, um, that's the problem, right? Is that nobody really, there's no way, no way, I mean, if, if somebody shows up from, from New York to go skiing and, says, oh, yeah, I quarantined at home for two weeks before coming up here. Um, I'm good to go. Um, there's no real way to check that, is there? Yeah, I mean, and the, this, these rules have been in place uh, all summer and, and through the fall, and uh, the state has not, um, not had a mechanism uh, for enforcing them. And, 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 you know, state officials don't, don't seem to be interested in, 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 in trying to um, – Sort of directly enforce or question travelers um, about about their travel history and their compliance. Um, however, there's there's sort of a there's there's sort of a fundamental you know problem with even trying to enforce it, which is that how you know how could you possibly police whether somebody quarantined in their home for 14 days before they came uh, to the state? So um, you know, given those sort of inherent limitations to trying to enforce this, it's it's it's, it's um, been left to you know essentially an honor system, um, mm-hmm. with with one exception in that um, the state has asked 
uh, lodging facilities to, you know, require that their guests sign a, a sign a, a, a form that, that sort of attests that they have complied, uh, and also, you know, uh, functions as a way to, to help um, educate uh, guests about what their obligations are. Um, but uh, you know, uh, in my reporting, there, you know, I came across quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of frustration and quite a bit of um, anxiety about the degree to which um, these these quarantine rules are, are being followed or, or more specifically not being followed um, amongst uh, tourists who've been coming into the state. Um, and, I, and I think that um, that anxiety and that problem is, is you know, uh, likely to persist um, in, into the winter. And, and in fact, you know, if, if guests are spending more time inside when they're, at, when they're in the state, um, since it's cold, um, you know, those anxieties could, could only increase. Yeah, uh, John Blaine Sugarbush. I mean, I, I, I guess uh, I personally have quite a bit of skepticism, and I think many, many people would, when looking at the situation, because uh, it's it's really the norm in American workplaces to say have pretty limited vacation time. Let's say uh, you have, uh, let's say you have a couple of weeks off a year. You're thinking about a week-long ski vacation, say, between uh, Christmas and New Year's in Vermont, which maybe you've done pre- in previous years with your family and so on. And, and uh, so that'd be pretty nice. But um, And you already uh, you already um, used a week's vacation back in July to go to the beach or something. Okay, so uh, you're now in this situation where you want to take – you want to devote the week – to uh to skiing at Sugarbush and you don't really have any time left to uh to tell your boss hey I can't come into the office for a couple of weeks ahead of that because I don't have the vacation I mean how does that all how do you fit all that together Yeah it's it's a complicated issue and you know in that situation I don't have a good answer I think you know if you're not able to kind of work remotely and quarantine at home it, and your county remains in the yellow and red. And, you know, obviously the, the map is, is fluid and changes all the time. But, um, you know, there wouldn't really be an avenue for you to be able to come up here. Um, you know, I think what what's really important and what the ski industry has been working really hard at, um, you know, from the National Ski Areas Association to the Vermont Ski Areas Association and, and all the resorts is, is just education and trying to kind of uh, evince this point of, we're all in this together, and you know, if you want the ski industry to to be able to operate this winter and, and make it through the whole winter, as well as you know Vermont and the safety of guests and employees, you know, everyone really needs to follow these guidelines. And so, in the situation you mentioned, that means you probably don't get to come here. Um, if you yeah. have the ability to work from home, you know, you, you got to quarantine. So it's it's tricky, but I think if everyone just tried to take sort of a group mindset. Um, you know, kind of get maximum enjoyment out of the out of the season. All right. Well, John Blay of Sugarbush, uh, thank you very much. I'm going to let you go so we can accommodate uh, Molly Mahara on the other side of the break here. Uh, the um, uh, and we're also going to keep uh, Derek Brower in the saddle here for a little while longer. And uh, but uh, we'll, we'll go to a CBS uh, break uh, news break here at the bottom of the hour and a couple words from our sponsors and we will be back and continue talking about heading into winter in the COVID-19 era here in Vermont. Great. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. 
Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back continuing our conversation with Derek Brower of Seven Days. An interesting story in uh, yesterday's edition of that Burlings-based weekly, uh, and it's also on their website, of course, uh, all about uh, Vermont's preparations for winter and how is the state going to enforce uh, all of its efforts to uh, minimize the amount of uh, COVID-19 virus arriving within our borders. Uh, going to be joined now by uh, Molly Mahar. She is the president of Ski Vermont, a- a.k.a. the Vermont Ski Areas Association. And uh, Molly, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Dave. And good morning, Derek. And, uh, good morning. Uh, I-, I wanted to ask you, Molly, we were talking a little bit before the break. I don't know if you got a chance to listen in, but John Blay from Sugarbush was on with us, and uh, we were talking about how... Um, Sort of the practicalities of just trying to enforce the broad, uh, the broad s- strategy that the state is trying to keep here, which is that people are supposed to quarantine either before they arrive in Vermont or after they get here. Um, and I'm wondering, do you think that, uh, that there really is any, any practical way to enforce this or is it all on our system? Well, I think uh, I did. I did hear uh, your interview with John, and I think he did a great job answering that question. And I think it's uh, all about education of skiers and snowboarders, or skiers and riders coming from out of state, um, and really asking for their cooperation uh, to make sure that we have a full and healthy ski season this year. It's going to take you know all of the efforts that the ski areas are putting in, but also. Um, the skiers and riders have a shared responsibility for for keeping everybody healthy and um, and having a great season this year. And uh, and Derek, when you when you talk to people in preparation for your story, um, uh, how confident were people that that this is going to be uh, taken seriously? I mean, I, I think there's a there's a general I don't know whether it's a stereotype or whatever, but uh, that folks who are coming up for a ski weekend are, are are looking to obviously get outside and enjoy the great fresh air and the and the and the uh, the thrill of of going downhill fast and all that good stuff. But uh, you know, there's also a a pretty strong kind of a partying and vacation element to this, and and uh, maybe people would be saying, "I just want to kick back and relax, and I don't want to." follow a whole bunch of rules or whatever, uh, leave me alone, that, that kind of attitude. is. Do you, do you, have you heard much from people talking about a worry that that's going to be kind of a lot in the air? Yeah, I think, you know, I think really the only template we have for, uh, for what winter could hold is what we've, what we've experienced uh, this fall um, as, uh, as we, you know, we, we've just had our sort of first go with, um, with COVID era, tourism here and um you know i, I think it's uh the, the folks i talked to have had uh, really mixed feelings um about about the whole thing of course the you know this speaks to the the real the real dilemma everyone has which is which is the the tension between trying to you know resume economic activity as much as possible and 
and and preserve uh, public health as well. So, um, you know, all virtually every all of the business owners I spoke with uh, for this story uh, felt felt some degree of uh, of, of conflict about about that. Um, but you know, I think that when you, uh, you know, folks who are interacting with tourists this fall uh, directly, I think um, had varying perceptions of of compliance. Um, some of it, uh, I think, came down to uh, you know ignorance of the rules. And, and I do think that in the in the ski area regulations that have come out uh, this week, that there is a recognition and uh, more of an emphasis on the education piece, as you're hearing from um, from Molly and John as well. Um, but, uh, there's, there's also, I think, um, <laughs> I think some folks in the hospitality industry have had experiences in which they feel like, you know, guests are, are trying to skirt the rules actively, uh, whether, whether mm-hmm. by, um, you know, outright, outright lying or, or, um, trying to, trying to negotiate, um, you know, by saying, you know, well, I've, I've mostly stayed home, um, sort of, sort of thing. Um, with lodging lodging owners, um, or or simply asking for exceptions uh, to the rule. So I, I think it. I, I think while you know cases cases have cases have ticked up here, uh, there's there's no um, there's no real direct link to to tourism for that for that uptick. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think that uh, there you know compliance has not been uh, certainly not been uh, universal and and um, it's 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 left some people who who see themselves on on sort and the hospitality industry seeing themselves as sort of the front line here of trying to figure out what do you do with somebody who's here and uh, you know you don't really trust their um, that they're taking the rules as seriously as 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 you are. Yeah, that, that that is a tough situation, and, and especially when you are the person, you know, behind the county the counter at the lodging establishment or something who is trying to trying to, uh, uh, you know, negotiate with the, with the customer and uh, and 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 or uh, explain to the customer why uh, there's not going to be lodging available because the rules haven't been followed or whatever. That's that's a tough spot to be in, and I uh, I certainly. Uh, Certainly sympathize with that. Uh, Molly Mahar, uh, Ski Vermont, I'm sure, uh, tracks this. What what percentage of people who visit uh, Vermont ski areas in a typical winter season uh, are from out of state? Uh, well, it's the majority. Um, somewhere around 80% of our skier visits come from out of state. So it right. is a big it is a really big issue for our areas, and it's going to be an extremely difficult business um environment this this winter because of this cross-state travel. I mean, we understand the reason for it, but on the other hand, you know, when you're running a ski area and, you know, it's tough to make it on just uh, folks from Vermont hitting the slopes. I mean, we certainly hope that they will do that, but we we do rely on people coming from out of state and, and having the ability to be able to quarantine. You know, we are thankful that they are able to quarantine at home uh, before they come. And they can shorten that by a week if they combine it with a negative test as well. Um, I think it is important to, to realize, though, that people do spend the majority of their time outside at ski areas. And we've got a whole other level of precautions and uh, policies and protocols that the ski areas have been working on for months now um, in their operations. How do they change their operations to make sure that um, we are we are keeping everybody healthy. Uh, it's very important, obviously, to keep all of our guests healthy. 
but uh, just as important to keep our employees healthy and, you know, their families and our communities that are hosting our ski areas. Um, you know, that is extremely important. And so that's why, you know, we are limiting uh, indoor space, uh, access to indoor space, and people need to realize that, that you know, they're going to be putting their boots on in the car. They may be eating their lunch in the car, um, and ski areas are getting creative with ways to help people spend more of their day outside with, um, you know, fire pits, food trucks, things like that, so you can grab a bite, head back to your car if you have to warm up and, and you can't get a seat in the base lodge. Um, but we really need to be strict on that base lodge inside space. I think the outside space, you know, it's been generally acknowledged that being outside is a better place to be. Yeah, of course, in the wintertime, <laughs> there's some, sometimes you're, uh, you've been out skiing for a few hours or something and you uh, really want to warm up someplace. So maybe that would have to be in people's cars or they, or they could go back to the, whatever lodging uh, they are, uh, they're staying in and, uh, um, and I know that uh, the state uh, this week uh, issued some uh, guidance to uh, the ski industry uh, that you had been working on. Uh, Molly Mahar is sort of representing the industry in, in, in talks with, the, with state officials about creating a, a sort of policy uh, for how this winter is going to work. Um, and uh, I don't know, on a, on a sort of percentage scale maybe, how confident are you uh, that uh, – that this policy that has been crafted is actually going to work? Well, I think, uh, you know, what we were just talking about, the operations piece uh, on, at ski areas, um, the physical changes changes that they're making to the their physical plant, um, I'm very confident in, in that piece of it. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the piece, we, we did get some of the, the guidance fairly late. I mean, a lot of it has been, as I said, in progress for months, and, uh, you know, the ski areas have been preparing for that. Um, but, you know, sort of collecting uh, all the contact tracing for everybody on property every day, you know, we really just found out about that this week. And so, you know, that takes systems and labor and, you know, planning, and now we're, you know, we're just getting this in November. So, you know, yeah. it's kind of a tough timeline for us. And obviously our ski areas are extremely committed to making all of that happen, but, you know, it, it's just tough to get it that late. Um, but as I said, you know, the, the planning on the, the physical side of things, the lodge, the lodge, the uh, base lodge space, the um, lift lines, you know, lifts, all of that, you know, they've had a lot of time to work on. Yeah, the, 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 this contra- contact tracing that uh, that is being requested now. Um, so this basically, I mean, I, you know, I've seen this in in restaurants and so on. You go out to dinner now, and you're asked to fill out a form, you know, with your phone number and your your name and et cetera. Uh, and I gathered that that is so that if there were an outbreak uh, reported later on at this restaurant or something, they could reach out to uh, to me and say, um, "Who else have you been?" Hanging out with in recent uh, in recent days or weeks or whatever is is that how that works basically? Yes. So um, the state have, has asked us to collect that data in, in the event that they would need to use it for contact tracing. So you know we need to keep that data on hand for 30 days, similar to what restaurants and lodging establishments have had to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's uh, I mean even even that strikes me as. Um, and, and listen, I don't mean to denigrate all these efforts because I, I think I think the efforts that are being made are, you know, people are doing their best, basically. And uh, 
but I also worry about some of the practical considerations there. Um, you know, just in the course of daily life, um, you uh, might have some instant, instance of uh, being near somebody for a few minutes or something uh, on a Wednesday, and then you're asked on, you know, you get a call from the health department the next week, and they're asking you to identify, I gather, all the people you've met with, uh, um, and you got to remember back and think to yourself, okay, what, who, who, you know, um, when I was when the uh, oil delivery guy came uh, sometime last week, and I had a conversation with him about uh, scheduling a uh, uh, some maintenance on my furnace, you know, the annual maintenance on my oil burner or, or whatever. Uh, and then I go, oh darn! And I and I just, you know, it was an instantaneous thing, an opportunity to have a conversation. I forgot to wear my mask, <laughs> or you know, whatever, you know. And and you've got to remember that and think to yourself, okay, now, you know, did I find out who that guy was? I mean, I guess you could find out by calling the the, uh, the company. But I mean, there are all these sort of inc- incidental, uh, just bumping into people that goes on in the course of normal life, and. Um, I just, uh, you know, very quickly get to a, get to a spot where I kind of go, yikes. Um, am I, am I, uh, thinking, uh, sanely here or insanely? Would you say Molly? Well, I think you, you brought up the, um, the facial covering piece and obviously we have a mandate in this state and the ski areas will be enforcing that. I mean, really the only time that you wouldn't be wearing your mask would be if you're seated with your traveling party, um, and actively eating and drinking. So, um, don't, you know, you, you mentioned forgetting to put your mask on. Don't forget your mask if you're headed skiing. You know, you really, yeah. a lot of times we have those, um, the, the neck warmers or the buffs that people use and, um, that can be used, but it's really, really ideal to have a, a regular face covering that you would wear underneath that. And you probably want to bring a spare one because, you know, as we know, when we ski, um, those things tend to get a little bit damp sometimes, and so when you go when you head inside, you're you're obviously going to want to have you know something dry that you can put on uh, yep. to be more comfortable. But that's like a, a, a critical piece that the ski areas are um, are concentrating on, and then also the the distancing. I mean, they are setting up their indoor spaces to facilitate distancing between different traveling parties. You know, uh, when we're riding lifts. If they're people riding from two different traveling parties, we're limited to 50% of uh, lift capacity. And so that's a, another great uh, point to make to skiers this year is, you know, come with friends and family that you're comfortable and riding the lifts with from a COVID perspective. Um, yeah. That'll help keep the lift lines down. And, you know, if we have a lot of people, and we're not saying you can't ski as a single, but really rethink, you know, if I can go with a buddy or a couple friends or, you know, brothers and sisters, do it because that'll, that'll be a more fun experience for you and it'll keep those lift lines shorter. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, all, all, and all, it just sort of goes to all of the, uh, all of the, um, the practical considerations here. Some of them pretty, pretty fine tooth combed or whatever but uh derek uh, you know you you had an actually really interesting anecdote in your story about an inn down in uh, i think goshen was it uh blueberry hill inn uh and this family that showed up there and was first told they're they're ineligible to stay because of the covid19 issues and then i guess later on the uh they came back and the innkeeper relented is that right 
Yeah, this was this is really an example of what uh, some you know small business people and 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 folks like you know uh, desk clerks as well have been have have been dealing with. It seems like you know almost everyone I talk to has a war story about about fall foliage or summer tourism and. And in this case, yeah, this um, this uh, Blueberry Hill Inn is a is a small Indian Goshen, and and business has been quite down. Um, but um, the manager there, you know, <clears throat> relayed to me some stories about uh, you know some of these encounters she's had with folks who have shown up on her doorstep, um, apparently either you know ignorant of the travel restrictions against them or or disregarding them. This particular family uh, appeared to be um, unaware of the restrictions, and, and it, was a, it was a couple and two young kids, and they were from Tennessee and were already in Vermont, didn't realize that they had had the quarantine, uh, apparently were honest about it with, with the innkeeper, but she was still faced with this <laughs> With this dilemma, do you do you let them um, do you let them stay or or turn them away? And um, at first she um, she turned them away, and and after some conversation was was uh, coming around, the, you know he just wanted to camp and he had some family and he was already here, but um, he had um, he had taken some offense to her her posture and 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 sort of stormed off. Um, but later that night after it was dark, I guess he hadn't found anywhere to camp, so he showed back up. And um, and flashes lights at the building, and and you know, and asked again if if he could stay. And and this time she, you know, she was sort of at wit's end, and decided, you know, he might as he's already here, he might as well just camp out back. So, I, you know, I mm-hmm. thought that I thought that was that that sort of incident was sort of um, uh, indicative of of what um, these small little dilemmas that every everyone uh, in the hospitality industry has has faced, I think, and has had to make decisions about. About what to do now. This this innkeeper um, in Goshen is, is is pretty conscientious about it. But um, I, I spoke to some I spoke to a front desk clerk for for a uh, a major corporate hotel in the state who said that uh, you know her hotel's policy uh, was was not to really ask any questions um, of guests, not to ask them what color their county is, you know, what county they're from, um, but yeah. rather just to, to ask them to sign sign the form as if it was sort of any other fine print and and so uh every i think every employer um every business has has made slightly different decisions about what they think you know is feasible or in their best interest to um to do boy uh, you know and it's and it's such a tough call because i mean again obviously your your innkeeper there whose business has been way off since the covid crisis uh connected i'm sure was thinking i'd love to accommodate these people because uh, a little bit of income never hurts, you know. Um, and and Molly, let me ask you about the about that sort of principle with the uh, ski industry, which is a couple of minutes to go. But um, you know, this, the ski industry in Vermont uh, frequently uh, seems to be, uh, you know, in in a uh, a little bit of a nail biting situation in terms of just uh, are we going to have good good weather for all winter? Are we going to is going to be cold enough for snow making? Or you know, are, we're 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 a little bit uh, tenuous uh, in normal times. It seems quite frequently uh, this this idea that that all of a sudden it's it's real problematic for eighty percent of your customer base to show up. Uh, it's got to be scary. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, and ski areas are definitely looking at that. Um, I just want to make one point back to the the previous um, point that you were talking about with Derek is. Uh, the ski industry is really committed to that education, so we don't have that uh, about, you know, the cross-state travel and what people need to do 
Because I think we, we we really want to avoid that. We don't want people showing up saying, you know, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, and that's sort of what we're saying is you, this is the season to know before you go. You really need to do your research, figure out, do I need to buy tickets ahead of time? Do I need reservations, which we know some of our ski areas are requiring this year? Um, you need mm-hmm. to know that because you don't want to show up and, and find out, oh, I needed to make a reservation. I didn't know that. Um, and same thing with that cross-state travel. So, um, yeah, for yeah. Sure. But, but back to your question that you just asked, um, you know, yeah, I mean, skiing is a huge industry in our state. I mean, $1.6 billion industry when you add up, you know, direct spending, indirect, and then induced spending, which induced would be, you know, our employees going out and spending in the economy. And, um, and we also bring a lot of tax dollars to the state coffers as well. And so, uh, you know, but, but skiers have big startup costs. I mean, they need to make snow. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, for a ski area. And they need, yeah. to, they need to do that before they even, you know, get the first skier on the hill. And even this year, they need to really do more. I mean, as we've heard Killington is doing, they, you know, want to make sure that they have enough terrain open uh, before they open. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, we're watching. Lots of challenges. Hey, uh, Molly Mahar and, and Eric Brower, I thank you both very much for joining me. I'm afraid we're about out of time, but uh, interesting conversation. Perhaps we can touch base as the, uh, as the winter proceeds. Thanks again very much. Uh, hey, that's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show here at WDEV FM and AM. Uh, tune, in, tune in again tomorrow, and uh, meanwhile, stay tuned for Bill Sayre, Common Sense Radio, and have a good afternoon, everybody.